uh, short scripture readings. The first is Isaiah in Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6. This is God's holy word. Let's give our attention to its reading. Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed For our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Amen. In Matthew chapter 27, to the New Testament, Matthew chapter 27. Verses 45 and 46. Matthew 27, verses 45 and 46. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God endures forever. Amen. If you'd go to page 22, the back of our hymnal, let's read our catechism lesson for tonight. The suffering of Christ. Be focusing mainly on the first question and answer, 37. Let's read all three, 37 through 39. Read the answers together with one voice. Lord's Day 15, questions 38 through 39. What do you understand by the word suffered? That during his whole life on earth, but especially at the end, Christ sustained in body and soul the anger of God against the sin of the whole human race. This he did in order that, by his suffering as the only atoning sacrifice, he might set us free, body and soul, from eternal condemnation and gain for us God's grace, righteousness, and eternal life. Why did he suffer under Pontius Pilate as judge? So that he, though innocent, might be condemned by a civil judge, and so free us from the severe judgment of God that was to fall on us. Is it significant that he was crucified instead of dying some other way? Yes, this death convinces me that he shouldered the curse which lay on me since death by crucifixion was accursed by God.
we have the picture of what we are studying, reminding ourselves tonight. We have the picture that was given to us in John chapter 13, very beautifully. And there we see Jesus stooping down, taking on, it makes you think of Philippians chapter 2, doesn't it? Taking the form of a servant. Uh, servants would not have had the, the, the outer garments on. They would have had servant clothes because in servant clothes you're often getting dirty and you're often getting messy. So Jesus, in that moment, John 13, takes on the outer appearance of a servant, begins serving the disciples in that way by washing their feet, stooping down. And of course, we've heard that sermon all many times in our lives, the, the, the dirtiness of the feet in that day because of the shoes they wore. They didn't have paved roads or sidewalks. And so washing feet was a particularly gross thing to do. And of course, a servant could not do that without getting dirty himself. And that's a, a bit of the, largely the, the discomfort that the disciples are feeling. And Peter is feeling particularly Lord, I'm not going to have you wash my feet, right? Because this is, this is my Lord. This is the one that, that Peter has confessed to, the, to be the Messiah, to be the promised one of God. So uh, he's particularly uncomfortable with this. But what does Jesus say? Unless you allow me to wash you, you have no part in me. If I don't wash you, you have no part in me. Jesus himself is getting dirty. The, the picture there is, is helpful to us, but the, the shock of what's happening on, at a deeper level throughout the crucifixion, and even as we read in our catechism, right, all of Christ's life there was suffering. Especially at the end, but everything leading up to that was suffering as well. But it's, it's even, it should make us even more uncomfortable. It's more shocking than that he's simply washing our feet. He is taking to himself the guilt, the penalty, the punishment of sin. Dying a sinner's death, dying a criminal's death, coming under the wrath of God on the cursed death of the cross. All of these things we're reminded of in the gospel and in the story that we need to remind ourselves of because unless Jesus washes us, we have no part in him. That exchange, being accursed, body and soul, so that we might be declared righteous, body and soul. Suffering, body and soul, so that we might be redeemed, body and soul. You see the way that the catechism takes great care to make sure we understand that. He suffers body and soul so that the benefits that we receive from him are both body and soul. Three things that we think about tonight. First is this, Jesus was forsaken. As we read in Matthew, we'll think about what that means when he says, why have you forsaken me? First, Jesus was forsaken. Secondly, the comfort of his being forsaken. And lastly, the lesson of his being forsaken. Jesus was forsaken, then the comfort, and then the lesson. We read in Matthew chapter 27 that the time of Jesus' crucifixion 
was a time of darkness. Darkness came over all of the land in verse 45. And as you go throughout the scriptures, darkness is something that pictures God visiting in judgment. It's a picture of the visiting judgment and wrath of God. In Revelation chapter 6, we see the, the apostle there, the vision that he is giving, he has a vision of the last day in Revelation chapter 6, verses 12 through 17. It says this, and when he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, this is the vision of the day of judgment. There was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth. The moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. The the world becomes darkened, and then men are crying out that they would be saved from this great day, Revelation 6 says, of the wrath. The wrath has come, and who can stand? God's wrath connected with darkness there and several other places as well. Conversely, light is associated with God's favor, the right knowledge of him, being blessed of God. That's what light pictures for us in scripture. Psalm 36, for with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Isaiah 60, Light associated with salvation. Arise, shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. John 8, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus came to be the light, to bring the light, to give us the light. But we read, when he was crucified, everything became dark in the middle of the day. Why? Because that shows us that God's wrath was being poured out. And Jesus, as the perfect Savior, satisfied the wrath of God. Very simply, it's a very simple message, but it's one that we must cling to fiercely. It's one that's constantly under attack. Why? Because people don't like thinking about, or they think that it's unattractive when in their own picture of God that God would be so committed to his justice that wrath would be poured out on the son. But there we have the only hope of our salvation. And when Jesus says he was forsaken, what he is doing there is showing us the full extent of his experiencing the wrath of God. When he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What does he mean? We often wonder, what does that mean? What was Jesus experiencing? We can't know exactly, but we can say a few things. When Jesus shows us that he was forsaken, he was not forsaken in the sense that the Father stopped loving him. The Father did did not stop loving Jesus when he was on the cross. John 3 The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. John chapter 11, Jesus says, I lay down my life for the sheep and the Father has sent me to do this. 
in some way that we cannot understand, that we cannot fully fathom, when Jesus was hanging on the cross, the Father continued to love him in exactly the same way he always had. And in fact, he was so pleased to look upon the cross and see the obedience of the Son. There he sees the Son committed to the Father, committed to the Father's purpose, carrying it through to the end. A matchless wonder and mystery. So he was not forsaken in the sense that the Father stopped loving him. He was not forsaken in the sense that he had some sense of his divinity, of his godhood, taken from him. He continued to be exactly who he was until the end, true God and true man. Those are some of the things that we could say, the sense in which he was not forsaken. There are many other things perhaps we could say, but saying it positively, he was forsaken in the sense that when he went to the cross, he was completely deprived of present comfort and joy, body and soul, body and soul. He was forsaken in the sense that he was deprived of present comfort and joy, bodily comfort was taken from him. And that we know. There were few deaths, few ways of torture that uh, could compare to the pain of crucifixion. His suffering was real and it was torturous. There was nothing earthly that provided him any comfort. And then beyond that, what makes the death of Jesus so unique and what makes it different than all of our sufferings in the shadow of the cross is that he came under the full blow of the wrath of the almighty God. So his whole life leading up to that, body and soul was a form of suffering as we read in our catechism. He sustained the wrath of God. You think about it, he is the second Adam But as the second Adam, he doesn't have the opportunity of the first Adam to be in the blessed existence of the Garden of Eden. Perfectly sinless, he comes into a cursed existence. And he is experiencing all of the realities of the curse without himself ever justly having to experience the curse. He never sinned. He was perfect. He was sinless And he went to experience the sentence that was proclaimed upon Adam and all of Adam's children because of their sin. He went to bodily death without himself sinning. He did nothing to lose the blessed communion of life with God. We think about the Garden of Eden again. And Adam directly disobeys God. There he loses the blessedness of that communion with God. The relationship between himself and his God is different uh, thenceforth. Jesus did nothing to lose that, but he humbled himself to come under the pain of the curse. Bodily, he sustained suffering. In his soul, he sustained the wrath of God. For those three hours that Jesus hung on the cross, in some way that we don't understand, and thankfully, brothers and sisters, we will never have to experience, for those who are in Christ, he sustained to the end the full blow of God's wrath. And there we see the divine exchange. The penalty of our sin, the guilt of our sin laid upon the Savior, wrath exercised upon him. 
blessedness and life given to all those who believe. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Romans 3 says that Jesus is a propitiation. A propitiation is something that turns away wrath. It turns wrath away. The wrath of God was satisfied. These are the things we must affirm. Basic gospel truths, cornerstone of our faith. Humans may punish the body, but only God can punish the soul. That's something we need to understand about the sufferings of Jesus, the uniqueness of the suffering of Jesus, that only God can punish the soul. And that's what makes Jesus' suffering uh, so much more intense than any suffering that has ever been experienced on this earth, right? Because it wasn't just his bodily suffering. Crucifixion was a terrible way to die, torturous way to die, but there are many people who experienced it. There are many people in this world who probably have experienced even more bodily, physical sufferings than Jesus, but no one, no one has experienced the wrath of God being poured out upon the soul the way Jesus was. His soul was filled with the sense of that wrath. In those moments, he came under God as a just judge in a way that, thankfully, those who are in Christ will never understand. We wonder uh, about these kinds of things and why did Christ have to go all the way to death or particularly how can he take upon himself the the guilt of sin without the stain of sin and we see that picture given to us in the Passover lamb in the lamb of temple worship that the sins are placed upon him the guilt of sin and at that moment that is a lamb that must be led to the altar it is a lamb that whose life must be taken it's what it means to be a surety. Christ is talking about, is spoken of as our surety. The picture there is something that we see in the, the letter of Philemon, lovely short letter towards the end of the New Testament. In that letter, Paul attempts to become the surety for a servant who has run away. And Philemon 1.18, he says this, if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Paul says, I will stand in the gap for this person. I will be their surety, their guarantor. Whatever they owe, I will pay. And that's what Christ becomes for us as he goes through the cursed death of the cross. So here's our conclusion thought on this first point. Though Jesus was still loved by the Father, and dearly loved as he lays down his life. He comes under the wrath of God. The wrath that we deserved. The wrath that would have sent us to hell to redeem us body and soul. This is the truth that we see even from the very beginnings of the Christian church. Irenaeus says this. Our Lord Jesus Christ out of his boundless love became what we are that he might make us what he is. He became what we are, that he might make us what he is. He was forsaken. There's the comfort that we find in that, the great comfort. Let's talk about that for a few moments tonight. Christ was forsaken 
in order to satisfy all our forsaking of God. That's why he was forsaken, because we forsake God. We forsook him in Adam. We forsake him with all of the sins that we commit. There, that divine exchange we see once again. We are comforted because we know that we owe God two debts. As his creatures, we owe him a debt of obedience. We were created with a debt to pay this God with our honor and our worship. We owe it to him as creatures. We failed at that right from the beginning and we continually fail. Jesus paid this by being righteous and never sinning. The second debt is that we must be punished for the sins that we have committed. So we owe God two debts. Not just that we are sinful, but we have failed on the calling to glorify him and to live for him. Jesus, as a perfect savior, sets us free from both. And we talk about uh, why is it that Christ is such a comfort to our souls? Of course, it's obvious. But we need to understand that the primary comfort is found here. The primary comfort is not that Jesus is an example The primary comfort is not that that, uh, he sort of gives this picture of how you overcome the mistreatment of others. The primary comfort is that he is a surety by whom our sins are forgiven. Listen to one of the ancient theologians of the church who says this. I indeed desire to follow Christ as an example of humility, patience, self-denial, And to love him with the same affection that he has loved me. But I must eat of the Passover lamb. That is, I must chiefly feed on Christ dying for my sins. So every true Christian soul desires to follow Christ's obedience, humility, patience, etc. And to be transformed into the likeness of his blessed Savior. Whom should I desire to be like more than him? He who has done so much for me. But the main comfort that I receive from Christ is by eating his body and drinking his blood. My soul feeds and feasts itself most of all upon the death of Christ as satisfying for my sins. Yes, Jesus is the best example. There's there's no one else to whom we could, could look that can give us a better picture of how you live the blessed life of communion with God, of how you carry out the call of our mission to love God and to love neighbor. But before we can live for God and before we can look at examples by whom we learn how to live for God, we must be given life. And we only are given life through the forgiveness and the redemption that we find in Jesus Christ. He's a wonderful example. He's the best example of obedience, humility, patience. But the main comfort is that in him my sins are forgiven. In him my debt of righteousness that I owe to my creator is paid for. That is why he is such a wonderful savior. Before God calls us to live for him, he gives us life in Christ. And so this means that as we are doing our best to obey God and to live out our spirituality before God and doing our best to serve him and to live for him, we always need to be brought back to this principle that the main comfort we find in Christ is that in him our sins are forgiven. In him we have a perfect savior. As we look for assurance, how do I know 
that God loves me, that God has forgiven me. We look to Christ first. Even when the scriptures call us to examine ourselves, we examine ourselves for faith and repentance. Have we been wandering? Are we negligent according to various sins in our lives? Are we even worried that we're putting our soul in danger because uh, we have nothing in our hearts that smells of a love for the Savior? When our souls are brought to that point, we do not go to try to build up our own righteousness. We go back to the Savior. See, that's what it means to live by grace. Even when the scriptures bring to our minds a, a, a sense that we have been straying from God, The place that we return is Christ. That's where we find our comfort. That is where we go. That is what it means to live by grace. That is the comfort that we find in Christ. He was forsaken. We find comfort in the fact that he was forsaken. And then we draw out a few lessons from the truth that he was forsaken. We see in the sense that the the, the Son is sent all of the way to the cross, we learn something about how much God hates sin, don't we? For sin, Adam was cast out of the garden. For sin, the world was destroyed by the flood in Genesis 6. The whole world was destroyed. For it, the angels, for sin, angels were cast out of heaven. Cast out of life with God. For sin, Israel was taken out of the promised land and sent to exile. And above all, for sin, the beloved beloved son was crucified. If there was another way to perfectly and fully redeem us in the way that we are perfectly, fully redeemed and forgiven in Christ, would not the father have done that? He loves the son more than we could ever imagine. And yet the son goes to The cross, that tells us something about how much God hates sin. But when we consider that, we're brought to another realization. We realize how much sin hates God. Not only how much God hates sin, but how much sin hates God. Every sin of the soul, pride, malice, lust, all that it is is a declaration that one would wish that God would stop existing. Sin, intentionally and directly, takes God off the throne and puts something else in his place. So we learn through the cross and through Christ and the forsakenness of Christ, not only how much God hates sin, but we see how much sin is opposed to Christ. Third, we learn to view our suffering in light of of Christ's suffering. We talked about this this morning. Wonderful truth. That as those who are found to be in Christ, as those who gain Christ by uh, trusting in him, by trusting in the treasure, as they go through suffering in this life, they're reminded that in doing so, they are entering into the sufferings of of their Savior. They're entering into the life that Jesus lived, the road that he walked so that we might be forgiven. It's the best way for us to uh, get to know our Savior more in this world. But if the beloved son was forsaken and sent all of the way to the cross, doesn't it make sense that if we are beloved children of God, we will not be spared from every hardship in this life? If the beloved son has to drink the dregs of God's wrath 
to, uh, unto the end. Doesn't it make sense that if we are beloved children of God, we too, we will taste of the displeasure of God. Not drinking of the wrath the way that Christ did. But we will not be spared from every kind of discomfort. We too will experience suffering. But we need to understand to learn to see all of our suffering in light of Christ's. Christ was forsaken with God acting as a just judge. But if we are in Christ, all of our suffering is with God as a loving father, a tender and a loving father who loves us, who cares for us, who is bringing us through the refining fire that he might present us on the last day as his children. We never lose communion with God. We never come under his wrath the way that Jesus did when he was on the cross. Those are blessed things. So we see and we understand that as the beloved son was not spared from suffering, so too we will not be spared from suffering, but we can go through it in a different way. Then, Knowing that, we can learn why God brings us through suffering. Why does a loving father bring his children who are fully redeemed, who are fully forgiven, why does he bring them through suffering in this life? Three simple things that are probably all related to one another. The first is to make us see an emptiness in worldly comfort. It's not going to satisfy So, when we see an emptiness in worldly comfort, it makes us search for true comfort, for true satisfaction. Psalm 17 says this, As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness, and when I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. Psalm 16, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. It makes us search for true comfort, and true comfort is found in Christ, in our God. It makes us search, it makes us see an emptiness in worldly comfort, it makes us search for true comfort, and it allows us to find it in Christ. Three very simple reasons of why God, as a loving father, brings his children through suffering. And we know that as we do that with Christ as our surety, with Christ as the one who is forsaken, our minds can be transformed according to all of those things. We can say, this is my entering the sufferings of my Savior. Through this, I am knowing him, getting to know him more. And then lastly, as we saw in John chapter 13, when we are so taken with a view of the love of Christ, what does it make us do? So you must love one another. So you must love one another. When We understand the price that he paid in order to cleanse us and to cleanse us to make us one. What does that make us do as we look towards each other? And think about the call that God has placed upon us to love, to love one another. We do so in greater ways as we are taken with that vision of his love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for your goodness and your grace and your mercy. We thank you for the price being paid at the cross. We thank you that 
though we can't fully understand it, Jesus was forsaken, that he came under your wrath, that the wrath might be satisfied. What can we say to these words other than we bless you, we worship you, and we thank you? What a Savior. Hallelujah. In Christ's name, amen.